Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination of Hebrews, Mark Horton will be tying up some loose ends in our last chapter 8, and then we'll be starting into chapter 9. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, once again for allowing us to come gather and study your word, and to be doers of the word that we take into our hearts and spread to those to be an example to one and all. And thanks for Mark's faithfulness to these studies in Jesus' name. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you. It's it's good to be with you, uh, Tom, and with Travis there on our conference call this evening. We've been looking at the letter to the Hebrews, and our author has just kind of dropped a bombshell, he probably didn't worry too much about the views of Protestants in the 21st century when he wrote this, but his idea that the Old Covenant, which we refer to as the Law of Moses, was old and about to be replaced, he, at at the verse 13 of chapter, these verses were added later, much later and are somewhat arbitrary where the chapter breaks and the verse breaks are, but at the at the end of chapter 8, he says, Now in saying a new covenant, he has made one old, and that which is growing old and aging will soon disappear. And this may not have been a bombshell to the sin audience that received the letter and read it in the first century, but it should shell to many who are told over and over that the covenant ended on the cross as Jesus' physical body on the cross, and Jesus' last words, so to speak, on the cross were, it is finished. And there was discussion at the end of our last examination about, well, if Jesus said it is finished, then everything is finished. And of course, thought that for many years. But Jesus didn't say at that time that all things are finished. So I believe that the Hebrew letter here is an inspired letter. It is the Word of God. And the fact the Old Covenant is about to disappear as this letter is written in the time frame of 65 to 68 A.D., that is true. I don't believe that contradicts what Jesus said on the cross when he said, it is finished. 
when we were discussing this same verse in my local fellowship, one of our uh, older couples immediately made it that it is finished. Well, Jesus' sinless life was finished. Now, that's a very important thing. We just take it for granted that Jesus could live his life without violating the law of Moses. But that is an extraordinary fact, and that is an extraordinary fact that underlies, again, we take for granted that Jesus was able to take away our sins with his death on the cross. His death on the cross would have meant nothing had it not been for his sinless life. And this is seldom emphasized. Everyone focuses on the death of Christ, but yet the death is only for taking away our sin because he was the spotless lamb, the perfect lamb. And if you go through the old law, you'll see how difficult it was to find a blemish-free animal for sacrifice. So if we recall we earlier how difficult it was to find the perfect sacrifice, and Christ with his perfect life, of course, was... Uh, so when he could say it is finished on the cross, I mean, it's maybe that's a sense of relief that he had made it all the way through his life without sin, and he could become the perfect sacrifice. That was just a thought that I wanted to share with you because I found it most me that uh, that was truly the part that was finished there as he died on the cross. It is not an insignificant stone. It, it was a huge, huge thing for most of us. You, you ask me to not sin five minutes, and, you know, I might, could, I might could make that. You ask me not to sin for an hour, that's probably difficult. You ask me not to sin for a whole week, and that's impossible. Uh, but Christ lived his entire life without sinning. All right. Now then, so with that idea that the old law was still in effect at the time this letter is written, but it is about to fade away, we roll into chapter 9. Let's read the first five verses, please. Then, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was repaired, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of a glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. All right. Well, sadly for our listeners, perhaps, we have more time to go into some detail on these things than did our, our writer in the first century here. This letter is very brief, as are nearly all of the books of the Bible, and yet it conveys a vast amount of information. We have now the idea of this tabernacle, and our writer, while 
alluding to the fact that the temple is still standing in Jerusalem as he writes the letter, he prefers to use the tabernacle of Moses' day, the, the tent that was created while the Israelite nation was camped at Mount Sinai in, in Arabia as his model, rather than the mortar and stone, well, they didn't use mortar really, but the stone building that Solomon built and dedicated as a temple to replace the tabernacle, which, again, was a tent. Uh, and we've, I think we've talked about that in previous sessions here. But he prefers the tabernacle, and he's continuing now to talk about this. And he lets us know that this tabernacle was connected with the old age that has been referred to throughout this letter. They're at the end of the age. Uh, as he wrote, and the priesthood of Aaron is part of this old age, away. this covenant, as we saw in chapter 8, is part of this old age, it's about ready to pass away, and this sanctuary is part of the old age, and it is about ready to pass away. He, he calls it a sanctuary of this world, and various translations may use slightly different language on this. I've got uh, a few right here. One, the literal translation says, and the earthly holy place, Young's literal translation, a worldly sanctuary. And the King James actually says a worldly sanctuary. That's That worldly is tied to the Greek word cosmos, or it's a cosmical sanctuary. So it's not necessarily conveying that it's a sanctuary tied to the planet Earth, but it is a sanctuary that is tied to their world, their order of things, which is one and the same as the old age, the age of the temple or the tabernacle. And Jesus made it extremely clear, recall, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that the age would end when the temple was utterly destroyed, where not one stone would be left standing uh, on the other. That would that was to be the sign that he had ended. So this tent is part of this age that's on its way out. Now, the symbolism of this is absolutely amazing. I picked up a book written probably during the Second World War while the Germans occupied the Netherlands, and uh, there was a professor at one of the leading seminaries in the, in the Netherlands of, of the Dutch Reformed Church named J.H. Bavnik. And he had spent a better part of his early life in Indonesia, which prior to the Second World War was a colony of the Netherlands. He taught seminary classes there, but he also taught missionary work. And he was considered one of the foremost authorities on taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims and Hindus, of which there are many in Indonesia and and that part of the world. To this day, population-wise, I believe there are more Muslims in Indonesia than in any other single country of the world. And Bavnik spent the first half of his life sharing the gospel message with 
those peoples in Indonesia, a Dutch colony. Then in his latter years, he, he returned to the Netherlands to teach seminary classes. But he, he wrote this book called Between the Beginning and the End, and probably all the notes were made for this book while the seminary was closed because all of the college students in the Netherlands were transported by Germany into Germany to work in munitions plants for the duration of the war. And it's likely that Bavnik wrote down the manuscript for this book at that time. But it was only translated into English with sometime within the last five years. And it's got some fascinating ideas of what this tabernacle represented. When you look at the concept of the Hebrew God, it was a vastly different concept than most nations had of their gods because the Hebrew God is I am. This is how he presented himself to the patriarchs, I think specifically to Moses when Moses awakens to his higher purpose while in Egypt or after he's in exile in Arabia or wherever he was during those 40 years. I am. God is timeless. God is infinite. He exists completely beyond, outside of, and separate from what we know as the entire universe. For God, there is no past, present, or future. And and most Christians today just cannot get their heads wrapped around this idea. That everything has to be assigned a timeline and so on. But God doesn't have a past, present, or future. He is the I am, always present. All of time exists to him as a moment or less as a fraction of a millisecond. And all of the known universe is just a blip to God compared to his infinite nature. And Bavnik has this huge cosmic vision. He subtitles his book, which again is titled Between the Beginning and the End, and that's the entire sum of human history exists between the beginning and the end. He subtitles this a radical kingdom vision, and I highly recommend the book. It's not available as an ebook, but I was able to get it through a website that caters to starving seminary students. But the temple, or the tabernacle in this case, is a picture of God, the infinite, trying to deal with man, the finite. It is a picture of God, the incorruptible, trying to deal with man, the corrupt. (laughs) I could say corruptible, but um, in my case, it's more than that. It's just corrupt, not corruptible. So the temple, you see, serves as a picture of this. The Holy of Holies, even though it's represented as a 10 by 10 by 10 cubit cube, perfect cube, it represents the infinite and incorruptible God. And the courtyard around the temple represents the earth, the the physical earth which God created as a dwelling place for mankind. Now, you know, we're bombarded with 
National Geographic and Smithsonian Magazine, and they tell us over and over again that the universe is self-creating, self-perpetuating, and is the result of just billions of years of random happenings, and that man is an insignificant speck in comparison to the almost infinite universe. And this has affected, I think, even how Christians view the cosmos in relation to humanity. But if you look at it as Bavnik does from God's perspective, he wants to commune with man. He's going to create man, but in order to create man, he has to first create a dwelling place for man. And so the entire universe is just something God spoke into existence so that man could live there in his physical and corruptible human nature. You know, we have to have our climate uh, has to be between a very tight temperature range and, and so on for human life to exist. And all of these things that people are absolutely paranoid over human activity destroying, you know, the delicate balance that allows life to exist on this planet God set all that in motion so that we could live here. Interestingly enough, the man who translated Bavnik's work into English is apparently absolutely terrified that the climate change that man has brought on the earth is going to wipe out human life. I don't think Bavnik would agree if he were here uh, physically <laughs> to be able to discuss this with us. He has a much bigger view than the modern-day environmental movement, who views life as a, as a horrible accident, perhaps, of nature. Bavnik knows that it was all created for God to carry out his eternal purpose, and this tabernacle is a picture of this. So you have man out there in the courtyard. You've got a big bronze sea that represents the, uh, the ocean, and in Solomon's temple there were 12 additional pools out there in the courtyard. And that's the earth, land, and sea and everything. And then you have the Holy of Holies in, in the inside that represents God dwelling in infinity in a timeless existence outside of the physical creation. And then you have the holy place, which is the transition between the two. And in the holy place, we have the the uh, seven-branched lampstand mentioned here in verse 2 of our reading, and a table, with, and the table is set out uh, on the right-hand wall of the tent as you go in from the east, and the lampstand is on the left as you go in or on the south side. And this lampstand has seven lamps, and a lot of the ancient Judean writers talked about those seven lamps representing the seven visible lights of space, they were referring to the sun and the moon and the five visible planets. Josephus mentions this in his writings, and I believe there's several other uh, ancient Judean authors that uh, talk about this. And so this holy place is a transition from earth where man dwells to infinity where God dwells, and it corresponds to what we call space, outer space, the second heaven, 
so to speak, if you remember how Paul talked about the man caught up to the third heaven in the second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, So there's a lot of symbolism tied up in this little tent that God told Moses to build there as Israel is camped near Mount Sinai. Is this uh, making sense at all, or have I I gone amok here? I think as much as you can describe God, that was as close description as I could understand, Mark. Well, thank you again. I, I, I highly recommend this book of Babnik's because it gives us, it takes us back to that vast conception of God that, that the modern day scientists are trying to shrink. You know, they want to sell us a very small and weak God that only exists in the minds of lesser evolved animals. <laughs> you know, they're, they're so evolved that they don't believe in God anymore. You know, they're much more advanced than we are. But Babnik has transcended all of that. In, in this glorious image and shown us how the tabernacle represents the infinite timeless nature of God. Now, as we get down to verse 3, behind the second curtain was the Holy of Holies. And this is going to be very important as we look at chapters 9 and 10 here because we're used to thinking of there being a door between the courtyard and the holy place and then a curtain between the holy place and the Holy of Holies. But to our writer, they are both curtains, and the first curtain is what separates the courtyard where men dwell from the holy place, that place of transition. And then there's a second veil that separates that place of transition from the place where God is in a timeless and infinite state. So hold that thought. At the boundary between the two is the golden incense altar. When the priest came in every morning and afternoon after killing an innocent lamb, they offered incense on that little golden altar that stood right at that curtain in the back of the holy place. And that incense burning represented the prayers of the saints of God's people Israel going up to God and being heard by him, and there had to be incense burning on that altar when the high priest entered in once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he had to purify that golden incense altar with blood from the offerings made there on the Day of Atonement. Once the high priest got behind that second curtain, we find in the middle of this cube, 10 by 10 by 10 cubits, the Ark of the Covenant which was a box of acacia wood, acacia being the only tree that grows in the Sinai wilderness. And uh, I didn't get to cross over the Red Sea to uh, Saudi Arabia. When you look straight across where I believe they crossed over, you go a little ways north and you cross the border into Jordan. But I didn't get to go into that area. But the uh, vegetation is likely the same and the rainfall. And, and, I mean, it makes Death Valley in California look like a paradise in comparison. I mean, there's nothing that grows there, not even a blade of grass. But these acacia trees will just spring up out there in the dirt every so often. Now, the, And then there are 
a few springs with palm trees in the crevices of the mountains. But when you get away from those, you know, the acacia tree is the only thing that there is. It's an incredibly durable wood. But you can imagine that if it's surrounded by gold, that it would become even more durable. And so this box covered with gold exists, and inside of it you have the tablets of the Ten Commandments representing the Law of Moses, and I believe representing also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the Garden of Eden back in the second chapter of Genesis, right? In other words, Adam and Eve were convinced by the serpent in the garden that they needed to understand the difference between good and evil in order to be like God. And so I would ask the question to our listeners, how did that work out for them to be able to know the difference between good and evil? And you can ponder that for a moment. And and I'll answer the question here. It didn't work out so good for them. They did learn the difference between good and evil, but that wasn't all that the serpent kind of led them to believe it might be. And we have exactly the same situation for ancient Israel, do we not? They were given the law of Moses, which gave them the ability to tell right from wrong. And I would ask the same question. How did that work out for them? (laughs) And you can ponder. Yeah, you know, I mean, think about it. The law was a blessing, but it was also a curse. Yes, it was a curse. And it was a burden that no one could bear. And and we, we go back to our examination of the book of Acts. We remember in Acts 15, the great conference, we have these non-Judean believers coming in to the kingdom of God. And, you know, well, hey, don't these guys have to be circumcised and don't they have to eat according to the law? And, and they go, no, no, no. I mean, why would we wish this on anybody? You know, this is a curse. They didn't use those exact words, but, I mean, it was a curse. And it resulted in the final end of ancient Israel. I mean, much to the chagrin and disbelief of our modern dispensational and Zionist friends and relatives who we love dearly, but we sadly think that you all are a little bit crazy because ancient Israel as a physical nation was utterly and completely destroyed because they did not keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses is what judged them in their last day. And the book of Revelation describes how they were found incredibly lacking. The the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, by the way, I believe are the law and the prophets. And this is what judged Israel in their last day. They were found lacking just as the king of Babylon was. They were weighed in the balance and found lacking, and the kingdom was taken away from them in one day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, predicted by all of the prophets. So, you know, there's a lot of imagery tied up here in this little tent. We have the the law, which is the knowledge of good and evil, but we also have a rod of Aaron, which budded. Now, well, I was teaching there in, in our auditorium in Cloudcroft, and I said, now, 
if you're listening here to me talk and you look down at this oak pew and all of a sudden you a little sprout come out of it and then a little acorn and then an oak leaf, that would be really unusual, wouldn't it? And everyone agreed. Okay. Yes, that would be really weird. And so this is what happened with Aaron's rod when the ancient Israelites were undergoing one of their periodic complete rebellions against God's word. They said, well, who made this guy Aaron to be priest? We don't think he has any right to be priest. They, each tribe laid a rod out, and overnight God caused Aaron's rod to bud. And that budded rod was stored in the Ark of the Covenant along with the law of Moses. Now, this this staff, I believe, represents the other tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. Yes, the tree of life. You see, that was a much better tree. That was the tree they could eat all they wanted to from. And unfortunately, when they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that removed their access to the tree of life. But yet, they're both there in this holy of holies in the tabernacle. Isn't that kind of cool? Maybe I get too carried away by this imagery. (laughs) But you see, Christ Christ is coming, and our writer is going to show this to us. It's going to be so exciting here in chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's going to demonstrate how Christ bridges this gap between corruptible man out there in the courtyard of the temple all the way to infinite God in the Holy of Holies. Christ is the go-between there, and this 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 space in between, I told you it also represents outer space, but it also represents paradise. This is the place where all of the dead of ancient Israel that were righteous have gone. They're in kind of a holding tank waiting for Messiah to come, and uh, Moses is there, Elijah's there, they, they come out of there to be at the transfiguration. Samuel is there, he comes out to uh, terrify King Saul and his medium, if you remember that story. But they're halfway. They're they're not with man on earth, but they're not with God in his infinite nature. You see, they're, they're somewhere in between in limbo, and this is also paradise. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's telling the thief on the cross, right, tomorrow you will be with me in not heaven where God is, but in paradise because when jesus jesus goes to paradise with the thief then he comes back to earth where man is and he tells mary in the garden i have not yet ascended to the father so he didn't ascend all the way into god's infinite dwelling place there after he died on the cross he went where all dead humans go uh, to paradise or torment, you know, if you're the rich man who ignored all the beggars lying around in Judea and so on. But we're, we're going to see all this. It's just absolutely fascinating and amazing. And we have the cherubim there in the Holy of Holies. And where did we see the cherubim before in the Bible? Back mm-hmm. at the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the Tree of Life. They were, the cherubim were there with the flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve from the tree of life. 
So all of these images go back to God's eternal purpose and his vision of restoring what was lost in the garden. Man, represented by Adam, lost the access to God and the tree of life in the garden. Jesus came to restore that. And that's what we're going to learn about as we continue on into chapter 9 and 10. I didn't make any of this stuff up, man, but, but boy, you, you go back to the older authors. I even found a dispensational author writing in the 1940s about all of this fascinating imagery in the tabernacle. <laughs> because, of course, he was so old that he was trained before Schofield. But he's taken in the Scoville Bible, but he still remembers this phenomenal imagery that the old tabernacle represented. And I, the, Google Books has uh, made available a lot of these old out-of-print writings, and one was this great writing on temple imagery by a dispensational Baptist written in the 1940s. So I encourage you, if you have an interest in this, just Look for temple typology or tabernacle typology or symbolism of the tabernacle on the Internet, and you'll find all kinds of excellent stuff on there. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small think big, and press on towards the straight gate.